Scripture for today is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay. We avoided a disaster there. That was a close call. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray, and we will get to work. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your steadfast love and your grace to us. I just pray, Lord, that you would take this word and let it breathe in our congregation. Pray that it would encourage our hearts, that it would encourage us towards a life towards being on mission with you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, that it would increase and deepen the sense of significance and sacredness, Lord, that the call to making disciples really is for your church. So help me, and I pray, God, that you would help all of us to hear your word and to hear what it has to say to us, that it would increase our faith and that it would make us more faithful in our calling. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Marriage, work, careers, church, family, sex, sexuality, singleness, community groups, worship, sin, fighting sin, defining sin, bad habits, good habits, fear, self-reliance, handling money, budgeting, entertainment options, movies, TV shows, binge watching, time management, Parenting toddlers, parenting teens, parenting boys, parenting girls, dating, social media, food, keto diets, body image, what should I wear, is this appropriate, buying cars, buying houses, whether to rent, whether to own, borrowing money, politics, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, to vote or not to vote, woke theology, critical race theory, handling lawsuits, being wronged, being praised, celebrating birthdays, dealing with death, dealing with failure, dealing with success, addictions, setting goals, having a mission, dealing with conflicts, family traditions, family holidays, family gatherings, choosing friends, choosing a spouse. These are just a few of the questions that we all face, or a few of the issues in life that we all face, are they not? And on the one hand, being a Christian is as easy as pie. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But on the other hand, 
Being a Christian can be as complex as that list that I just listed off. Can it not? Making disciples, which is what our text calls us to this morning, is not merely telling people how to be saved from their sins. Making disciples is demonstrating how the teachings of Jesus applies to every single facet of life. Thus, this is a big job for the church, is it not? Since the mission of GCF is to make disciples for the glory of Christ, and just the week before last, Pastor Charlie touched on the topic of discipleship, and since I just finished a class at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in which I wrote a 20-page paper on Matthew's view of discipleship, and since I found out on Tuesday that I would be preaching today, I thought, well, this is in the cooker already for me. So I will take that paper and whittle it down into a sermon, which is actually quite a big task, taking an academic paper and making it something that is hopefully helpful for you all. And I do hope that this would be helpful for our church. My goal this morning is simple. I want to encourage us to continue in the task and in the calling of making disciples for the glory of Christ. I want to also help us, or maybe to accomplish that goal this morning, of encouraging you to make disciples for the glory of Christ by helping you see the sacredness and the significance of what the call is to make a disciple for Christ. So this morning we will look at discipleship from the book of Matthew, um, what it is and why it is so important as Jesus sees it. So let's look at discipleship through the lens of these three points. Number one, Jesus' authority as a divine son of God is the foundation for discipleship. And number two, the resurrection of Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit promises success in this call. And number three, the presence of Jesus clarifies the goal of discipleship for us. So we have the authority of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus. Let's take those three things. Number one, Jesus' authority as the divine Son of God is the foundation for discipleship. Before Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples, he clarifies something that's rather important, namely that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Their going, then, is built upon the rock-solid authority of Jesus. And we see his authority in a number of different ways. And I can't touch on everything here, so I'll point out a few of them. Number one, he demonstrates his authority through his right to call disciples. Jewish rabbis would have been approached by a potential disciple and they would have been asked if they would take them under their wing so that they could apprentice under them. It is the opposite with Jesus. Jesus was the rabbi. He was the teacher who went out and he said, you follow me. 
Jesus chose his disciples, whereas in Jewish custom at this point, it would have been customary for the one wanting to be discipled to go and approach the teacher and ask them, would you disciple me? Um, Instead of waiting for potential student applications to hit his inbox, Jesus then went out looking. And among the first of them were Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus issued his invitation in the form of a command, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then we're later told that in both instances that he went to these, that he called them to be his disciples, they dropped everything and they followed him. And I hope you guys realize what they were dropping. They were dropping essentially their family connection. They were giving up their careers. They were giving up a family legacy in the fishing business in an instant to take on this completely new identity of becoming a disciple of Jesus. We see his authority in his call to make disciples. Jesus demonstrates his authority also by calling his disciples to count the costs. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus tells us that he demands complete surrender from those who would call themselves his disciples. In this particular instance, the scribe came and he claimed that he would follow Jesus wherever he went and everywhere he went. And yet Jesus tells him that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the statement that Jesus is really making is actually a question. Are you willing to give up the comforts and the securities of this world, if necessary, to follow me? Are you ready to do that? In fact, Jesus radically redefines family in light of the kingdom of God. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, 46 and 50, Jesus utilizes one of his many teachable moments. With mother and brother requesting his attention, Jesus poses this question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And we can only imagine how stunned the crowd would have been when Jesus answers this question and he says that something that totally upended the Jewish paradigm of family. He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mothers. So not only does Jesus claim that he is God, but he proves that he is God and he verifies this fact by claiming the right to redefine the meaning of family. Now for the disciple of Christ, the kingdom of God is now the central reality of their lives and not their family, their biological family. The follower of Christ then is forced to examine themselves to see if they are willing to let go even of their biological family, if necessary, for life in the kingdom of God. And the third way Jesus demonstrates his authority is that he calls his disciples to follow him. And here's what I mean by that. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus teaches that he is always the focal point of discipleship in the life of the disciple. He tells them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the goal in Jewish discipleship, in the context that Jesus pronounces this command, the goal of discipleship and what was customary was to become like their teacher. So the disciple would become like their teacher ultimately. And the disciple would eventually graduate and become a leader themselves. And then they would find other disciples who would strive to become like them. 
But see, this is not so exactly in the kingdom of God. The goal of discipleship, no matter who you are doing life with and no matter who you are walking with, is always to become like Jesus. You are always striving not to become like the person in your life exactly. You are always striving to become like Jesus, to observe all that Jesus has commanded so that you become more like him in his likeness. Tom Schreiner, he said this, which is an interesting quote here. In Matthew 5-7, through 7, disciples have a distinct profile over against the world. They admit that they are poor in spirit, that they are peacemakers and merciful, that they endure persecutions, they do not hate those who mistreat them, are not marked by lust and abuse of women, love their enemies, do not practice religion for the praise of others, trust God for their physical needs, and do not judge others. Believers who live in such a way are salt and light. They communicate their difference from the world and shine as witnesses in a dark world. So the kingdom of Jesus is not only commencing, but it's radically different than the status quo of the world. And Jesus demonstrates his authority by setting up his unique kingdom and calling the world to submission to it. Until the words of Jesus... Um, permeate the individual's life so profoundly that their entire lives are shaped by his truth, by his teachings, into his likeness. So that's another way that we see the authority of Christ fleshed out, that he's calling them to be like me over the course of your entire life. We see his authority in his call to you, to us, to count the cost. And we see his authority in his right to call his his disciples um, to faithful obedience to him. So that's number one. Jesus' authority as the divine son of God is the foundation for discipleship. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit promises success. Now, disciples were weak. They are weak. And they're filled with failure. We see this a lot, not only in Scripture, but probably in our own lives. They are weak in their understanding. Do you remember when Jesus talks about his death, how the disciples tried to stand in his way and say, no, no. They didn't understand. They were physically weak as well. When Jesus goes to pray, he says, stand watch. And what do they do? They fall asleep. They're physically weak. When he was arrested, they all fled. They took off on him. It's amazing. Now, the best example of weakness is probably Peter, who inadvertently provides a great hope for the church, actually. He is just sure that he won't fail Jesus, but he certainly does. Jesus doesn't need Peter the way Peter needs Jesus, and that's true for all of us. The good news here is that Jesus is the Savior who builds his church. Now, Michael Wilkins' commentator makes a, a point that Peter, of Peter when he says, in his success and failure as a leader, Peter provides an instructive case study for the church. Peter will have a foundational role in establishing the church, but the focus is still on Jesus who says, I, I will build my church. Now, we may be left to wonder, 
How in the world are these weak, imperfect, doubting, self-reliant, and filled with fear kind of followers going to get anything at all accomplished for Jesus, especially the task of world evangelization? You ever wonder that? And you might even feel that about yourself or about your church or whatever it might be. You feel the weakness. How are we going to get this job done? Why press on in making disciples, knowing the mess, knowing the disappointments, knowing the inconsistencies, knowing the obstacles and the limitations, to name a few? Why press on? And the answer is the resurrection of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is available to disciples as they embark on the mission of Jesus that he has left us with. Now, when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church, it means in English and in the Greek that he will build his church. R.T. France points out how closely this scene resembles the commissioning narrative which occurs throughout the Old Testament where God's often reluctant and inadequate servants are sent out to fulfill his purpose with the assurance of his empowering and his presence to go with them. Such stories are told of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Samuel and Jeremiah. If this is true, then the call to discipleship, you see, to all believers shares some similarities with Old Testament figures. That's amazing. Now the difference, I would argue, at least maybe one of the key differences between the call that they had and the call that we have is that we are receiving this call and we are being commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ who is soon and who did send his Holy Spirit to empower his believers. So there we see the authority of Christ. We see the power of Christ in his resurrection is going to ensure the success of the discipleship mission. And number three, we see the presence of Jesus clarifies the goal of discipleship. The goal of the Great Commission is to worship Jesus. Now, Leon Morris makes an important point. He says this, the master is not giving a command that will merely secure nominal adherence to a group, but one that will secure wholehearted commitment to a person. Morris is suggesting that discipleship is personal, that it's intimate, in fact. And here's what I mean by this. Disciples hear the word of Jesus and they do the word of Jesus out of obedience to him. It's personal. When Jesus says that he will be with his people to the end of the age, it is indeed a great hope, is it not? But I want to suggest to you that it's actually more than a hope. It's not only a hope that Jesus and his presence is with us to the end of the age. It is a reward itself. It is actually the purpose of our creation and our existence. God is with us. So in other words, let me say this, God with us is not only the hope for discipleship, but discipleship is also hope for experiencing God with us. Let me say that again, because I think that's really important. I think it's good. 
God with us is not only the hope for discipleship, but discipleship is also the hope for experiencing God with us. So it's not only the hope for actually getting it done, but it's actually the point of our existence, you see? Do you realize that the reason why you were created is to be in fellowship with God and that discipleship, when you follow his calling, is one of the ways that you actually come into fellowship with God and experience that Jesus is with you. That's amazing. If you're wondering, if maybe you, if God feels distant from you, maybe it's because you're not either being discipled or you are not discipling somebody. Matthew's idea of discipleship climaxes in his very last word of the book. You notice that the book ends with, I will be with you always to the end of the age. But notice this, that his conception actually starts with the same theme in verse 23 of chapter 1. What do we read? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The very beginning of the book and the very final words of the book. God with us. I'm with you. This summarizes the point for why you live. The point for why you were created was to be in fellowship with Christ. And the call to discipleship, I argue here, is the way that that gets manifested, the way that it gets fleshed out. When you do life with somebody, you're on mission with Jesus, and Jesus is there with you. Jesus, or I'm sorry, discipleship is about personal knowing. Now, there are many episodes where we see that Jesus faithfully, patiently, and diligently works with his disciples to teach them and to develop them. Now, the followers of Christ are all a work in progress who need lots of help. Remember when Jesus announces his death? I already touched on this a little bit. And Peter tried to thwart the possibility, what does Jesus do? He enters in and he disciples him by explaining to him that his mind was not actually on the will of God. Here we see that Jesus is teaching Peter and pointing him to the truth and calling himself, calling Peter to align himself with it. Now here's another interesting scenario that Jesus um, has and shows us with his disciples. Disciples, they were learning to deepen their dependence on Jesus as well. Now when Jesus ministers to the crowds, to the 5,000, right, he challenges them, you feed the crowds. Give them something to eat. Now, this shows us that Jesus knows something about them that they did not even know about themselves. Jesus is the good counselor. He looks into their souls and he sees something about them that they didn't even see themselves, about, them, about themselves. And what is it? Naturally, when he tells them, you give them something to eat, they'd say, well, how is this possible? right? Now, Jesus, I think, issues that, and he, and he tells them that. Do this. You do it. Why? Because I think what it does is it highlights that he is seeing their self-reliance, and they didn't even understand the depths of self-reliance in, in their own hearts. And I guess my point with this is that 
being a disciple of Christ is something that is very personal and very intimate. We see that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the wonderful counselor who actually sees into the heart and into the soul of man something that they didn't even see for themselves. He saw that they had a self-reliance issue. They didn't understand that. But he, because he was so close to them, because he was with them, you see, he was able to look inside their souls and pull something out that they would never have been able to do themselves. A similar thing happens in the boat. Remember when they were facing the storm, Jesus rebukes them for their great fear. Now, their fear seems reasonable. If you're in a 24-foot fishing boat and there's white squalls coming, well, that's a little bit of an embellishment. But if there's a storm, you can be scared, right? And fear seems like a natural response. However, Jesus makes them aware of an obvious disconnect between their situation and their Savior. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, he's calling them to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and how that changes the way that they experience everything that they face. Instead of being crippled with fear, they, <clears throat> they find their peace in the midst of life storms because Jesus is the living God and the creator of the universe, and he is with them. Many of these teachings, they flesh out the reality of what it means to be a follower of a heavenly king who is with us. Now, discipleship, therefore, is very personal. The presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is not only the hope for discipleship, but discipleship is also hope for experiencing God with us. When you walk with people and hear them and know them and encounter their fears and doubts and misunderstandings, it gives us an opportunity to point them to Christ and what he says and how he applies and how he lives in that situation. And there, Jesus meets us. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, is not only hope for success, but it's also the goal to experience the presence of God with us. And how does the Great Commission end anyway? When it's all done and finished and consummated, we see in Revelation 21, Revelation 19, it's the marriage feast of the Lamb. And it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So Jesus is with us to the end of the age, and the consummation, the celebration, is none other than God dwelling with man when it's final. So let me close this morning by comparing Genesis 1.28 with Matthew 28.18-20. Okay, I want to look at the Old Testament and Genesis. I want to look at the New Testament, and I hope that you can gain a sense of why this is so significant. Greg Beale calls the Great Commission a renewal of Genesis 1.26-28. I think that both of these passages are actually Great Commission passages. I think that Genesis 1.28 is the Great Commission of creation. And I think that Matthew 28.18-20 is the Great Commission of the re-creation. Comparing these two passages, I think, helps us to grasp how significant a privilege it is to make disciples for Jesus. 
Now, here are four similarities that I want to draw, and I think there's a lot more. But let me just pick on four between these two passages. First, both are a commissioning of sorts. They are initiated by God's authority. In Genesis 1.28, it begins with God speaking to them, and God said to them. And in Matthew, in like manner, it tells us that Jesus came and said to them. So that's one. It starts with God speaking directly to them. Number two, another similarity. Jesus begins by claiming his authority over heaven and earth that rightfully belongs to him. This forms the basis for his command. Now, it is true that in Genesis chapter 1, that we don't see God saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But what we do have is the accounting of God creating heaven and earth. Right before God makes mankind and right before he comes to them and says, go and be fruitful and multiply, we kind of see God creating heaven and earth, do we not? And in, in the case of Matthew, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over creation, including disease, including demons, and including death. He shows his authority over all of these things, which are ways that creation suffers under the curse of sin, and Jesus has overcome all of these curses. So that means Jesus is the fitting high king to say, go and make disciples, and I will be with you always. A third similarity is that the nature of the commission was essentially the same. God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the entire earth while Jesus talks to his disciples and he tells them, make disciples of all nations. In both cases, the essential command is to fill the earth with followers of God. In other words, the goal, God's goal in creation and God's goal in recreation are very similar, in fact, that the whole earth would be filled with worshipers of God. God hasn't given up on his creation mandate. Now it takes a different flavor by making disciples in Christ. And a fourth similarity is that both cases, God shares his authority with his people for the purpose of bringing the world under the rule of God. You see this? God shares his authority with his people. When God says, have dominion in Genesis chapter 1, that is kingly language. Have dominion. Who has dominion? Kings have dominion. And God is the rightful ruling king. And he indicates that mankind is designed to be on co-mission with God. And here's one of the, the first ways that, man, or that God puts man in charge of his creation. How does God put man in charge of his creation? Right off the bat in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. They name the animals, right? By the time we come to Genesis 2, we see mankind naming the animals. Those are God's animals, Man has no right to name them. You see what God is doing? He's saying, I have authority over everything, but I want you to participate in it with me. I want you to carry it out upon the earth with me. So here, take my creation and rule over it for me on my behalf. Name the animals. That's the function of a king or a king-like role. 
They're having dominion. They're exercising God's authority on his behalf. It may not seem like a big deal to name animals. You never thought that was the job of a king, but in fact it is. And then we start to see that they have something else that was far more significant than even that. And what is that? That they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the image of God in all the earth. Now, don't miss this. Let me explain this if I could. In the ancient Near East, kings who would claim a territory would then station a statue of their likeness, of the king's likeness, in that area. And why would they station that statue of the king's likeness in the area? Well, it was to show that they own that land, that they have conquered, and they now rule that little domain. And it is argued that this is exactly what God is up to by creating mankind in his image, you see. God makes mankind in his image, but it was up to mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth on behalf of God's command. And by filling the earth with the image of God, it demonstrates that God is the rightful and ruling king over all the earth. That was the intention and that was the design in Genesis chapter 1. Go and be fruitful and multiply my image in all the earth. Go fill this thing up to the brim with my image and it will show that I am the ruling king and reigning king over all. And we have a part in that. We carry out his authority. That was his intention. Now consider the similarity to discipleship. To make disciples of Jesus who observe all that he commands is to fill every nation upon the earth with the likeness of Christ. Do you see that? Showing that he is the ruling king over all the earth. And even more, just like God shares his authority in creation by allowing man to name the animals, do you see what Jesus assigns in the Great Commission? What does he say? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want to take a time out here and say, can you believe that? What right? What right? Do we have naming the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit upon anyone or anything? What right do you have? What right do I have? What right does any created being have to name the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit upon a new creation in Christ? That is God's right and God's right alone. And yet, here we see that Jesus takes his authority and he shares it with his people and says, take my authority and now exercise it. In creation, man named the animals. In the recreation, mankind is naming the authority and the power of the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit over his new creation. 
That's amazing. Discipleship, you see, is dominion. It's exercising the rule of God on this earth while he is in heaven. We are on commission with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He takes his followers post-resurrection and says, here, exercise my authority for me on my behalf. See, I have this little project going on. It's called world evangelization. And you, church, you are going to complete it for me. With my help, of course, bringing the whole world under submission to my word. God, my Father, started this project in the Garden of Eden and creation, and now through my death and resurrection, by the power of the Spirit, we're going to complete it. The whole earth will be filled with the image of God. It will happen. And the reason, you see, the world must be filled with the likeness of Jesus, teach them to, to observe all that I have commanded, the reason, why the, the reason why disciples must be formed in the likeness of Christ, why? Why does Jesus envision us making disciples in the image of Christ? That there would be the image bearers of Jesus in every nation throughout the entire earth. Why do we make disciples in the image of Jesus, in the likeness of Jesus? Well, it is this. It is because... Jesus is the only human being on the earth who still bears the likeness, the actual, the, 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 uh, the pure uh, reflection of the image of God. Everybody else has been, or the image of God and every other person has been marred because of sin. And that's not the case with Christ, you see. He's the only one who rightly bears the image of God upon the earth. So when Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded, he is saying that your task, church, is to fill the earth with my likeness so that the image of God is rightly presented in all the earth and that God, the creator God, is shown to be the ruling king. So I hope that sinks into us. I hope this means something to us because when you teach the name of Jesus, whether it's to a child or whether it's to somebody old, what you're doing is you're bringing the earth under submission to God's rule. So keep making disciples. Teach your kids. Teach, your, teach women. Keep teaching men. Teach parents, teach husbands, teach wives, teach professionals in your career. Teach everyone to obey all that Jesus has commanded because by so doing, you're filling the earth with the image of Christ and you do your part in establishing the rule of God over all the earth. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word to us, and I pray, God, that you would just take it and use it and encourage your church and shape your church. We pray, Lord God, that um, we would find great joy and see your presence in making disciples. Lord, thank you for this calling. What a privilege it is to take your authority and exercise it on your behalf. Pray that we would be good stewards of it, and we ask, Lord, that you would go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.